Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, September 11th, 2018. I tried really hard to theme this one. So close. Not quite there. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program... That dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of really crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular Pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works over and again. We demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. There's a whole lot of uh, ear-scratching going on out there, and people just teaching for shameful gain, just straight up, uh, well, mythology? Yeah, nonsense like that. So, So here's the deal. Today's episode kind of, sort of, has a theme, and uh, it, just, we'll just say that one of the <laughs> one of the segments just doesn't quite fit the theme. So it's it's themed ish. Yeah, every episode of Fighting for the Faith, unless I tell you, has an overarching theme that I'm grinding on. Maybe I'm teaching a particular biblical doctrine. Maybe I'm teaching you an apologetic. Thing you know, maybe we're dealing with epistemology, things like that. I I rarely ever say it out loud. Some episodes are super obvious as to what the theme is. Others, yeah, not so much. It's, it takes a little bit of thought. Uh, but uh, the the reason I do this is because those of you out there who kind of think that way, you you want to know, you want to figure it out. And at the end of it, you might be taking notes and you know, thinking, okay, I think the theme is this. 
Whatever you think the theme is, we'll just say that's okay. Uh, but uh, the point is, you're looking for kind of what is it that unifies the episode? What, what do all of the different segments and the sermon review have in common? And think of it this way. Hour number one is the, uh, is the uh, lecture time. Uh, hour number two is lab. Yeah, just... Anyway, you get the idea. So let's talk about what we're going to do on this installment of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to begin with a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. And by the way, this is the segment that doesn't fit the theme. If you're wondering which one doesn't fit, this is the one. And we're going to know, we're going to go, we're going to take a look at Shayon's book and in fact, what is the name of Shayon? Here it is. When Heaven comes down. That's the name of Shayon's book. This is He's written several books, but this is one that he's written. Uh, so when heaven comes down, experiencing God's glory in your life, we're going to be looking at chapter number nine, uh, at least a small portion of it, uh, titled From Glory to Glory. And in chapter number nine, guess what? Shayon is talking about the restoration of apostles. Mm-hmm. Not the ongoing fivefold ministry, but the uh, the restoration of apostles. Apparently, the the church has gone for two millennia without them. Until yeah, in fact, uh, what's funny about the, uh, what he says in this book, he links it to a particular revival in Canada. Yeah, that's where the Canadians are from. And uh, we'll we'll, t- <laughs> we'll talk about that in uh, in just a few minutes. Then uh, we're going to mix it up a little bit. We're going to be doing a money grubbing televangelist update as we listen to Jensen Franklin and a portion of his message titled "The Anointing Makes the Difference." And boy, is this a slick! And I mean, really slick twisting of scripture. Uh, the reason it's slick is because. He's going to read out part of Exodus regarding a very specific anointing oil recipe that God had instituted and made as part of the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, then he does something really slippery, and then he just starts making stuff up. And we'll, we'll note that along the way. This is a weird uh, you know, way of handling God's word or mishandling God's word. I think uh, my friend uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller calls this the heresy two-step, where you you know you lay the text down on the ground and say, "Look, there's a biblical text," and then uh, and then you kind of sashay to the right or sashay to the left to where you just kind of leave that that text on the ground and just go freewheeling. You know, yeah, that's my attempt at a Texas. Excellent. Anyway, so uh, yeah, that'll be segment number two. And then uh, somewhere in there, we're going to take a break and we're going to do a long segment as we listen to a a little bit longer portion of John Maxwell's uh, message titled How to Have a Blessed Life. And boy, does he really, really, really twist uh, the Sermon on the Mount and does so in in a very interesting way. And then in hour number two, Hope you're sitting down, Adam Hushka of Narrate Church. We're going to listen to his sermon titled "A Word About Faith." What's the dream? I I don't know what the dream is, but there, that's what we're going to do in hour number two. So strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We got a lot of ground we need to cover. Since we're going to begin with a new Apostolic Reformation update, let's do this. 
Chief Vane, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the team has sliced. They're Pinky. The pinky and the brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled. By the dawning of the sun, they'll take over the world. The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. The pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. All right, so we're going to do a little uh, historical research, shall we? Uh, we? We note that over and again when Michael Brown, yeah, Dr. Michael Brown, talks about the New Apostolic Reformation, the, he always refers to it as the so-called New Apostolic Reformation, and then he basically tries to poo-poo the whole concept and basically says, you know, listen, you know, I'm a five-folder kind of guy. You know, that that means I believe what Scripture teaches regarding the five-fold ministry. And, uh, you know, that 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 God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. See, you know, and we've always had these things, and you... Mean old gunky heads out there that are trying to, you know, create this conspiracy of the new apostolic reformation. You know, these people who apparently believe in the restoration of apostles. No, 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 no. That was just C. Peter Wagner, you know. <clears throat> yeah. We noted that not too long ago that Patricia King, 10 years ago, openly wrote about the restoration of apostles. And oddly enough, in um, in Cheon's book published in 2009, so not quite 10 years ago, but almost nine years ago now, uh, in Heaven Comes Down, Cheon was openly talking about the restoration of apostles. In fact, the chapter we're going to be looking at is chapter 9, titled Glory to Glory, and I want to read out uh, the segment titled uh, The Restorative Power of Each Wave. The Restorative Power of Each Wave. Here's what Shayon wrote. <clears throat> the Restorative Power of Each Wave. As I look back through the history of revival, I see that every wave of God's outpouring is important. Because in each revival, he, God, restores something. In fact, over the past half century, we see that in each movement, God restored an office within the five-fold ministry. Which is, by the way, this is a goofy sentence because is he literally saying the church has been without evangelists and been without pastors? I mean, anyway, so God has restored an office within the five-fold ministry, including apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, in the next one, he actually talks about evangelists, but we're going to fast forward a little bit to his discussion of the third wave. The third wave, if you're familiar with the NAR, if you're familiar with the Latter Rain movement and you know parts of the Charismatic movement, uh, this the third wave kind of crested in the 1980s, and I you know with the, with the Kansas City prophets, and then really hit its high watermark later uh, with the um, with the Toronto 
outpouring. But listen to what Shayon writes, page 121. In the third wave of the 1980s, God brought forth prophets as John Wimber introduced the Kansas City prophets, Paul Kane, uh, Mike Bickle, Bob Jones, James Gall, and Jill Austin. Other prophets also emerged during that period, including my friend and covenant brother Lou Engel, my sister in the Lord, Cindy Jacobs, Jane Hammond, and Chuck Pierce. All people that we seem to review with some regularity here at Fighting for the Faith. Anyway, the 1994 revival in Toronto, listen to what he says. The 1994 revival in Toronto restored the office of apostle with the birth of many apostolic networks, including John and Carol Arnott's Partners in Harvest. So John and Carol Arnott are apostles. Rick Joyner's Morning Star, that makes Rick Joyner an apostle. And watch this, Bill Johnson's Global Legacy. Yeah, Bill Johnson is an apostle. And Heidi and Roland Baker's Iris Ministries and our church's own Harvest International Ministry. Let's just read the last part of this section. So now in 2009, we see the convergence of all five of these restored offices coming together and being expressed through the body of Christ and his followers, the saints. Ordinary lay people are being equipped to move in signs and wonders, to evangelize, to teach, to plant churches, to prophesy, and to preach. It's catapulting the people of God to do his work in establishing the kingdom. Each wave of revival has been significant in its fulfillment of God's purposes to see his glory fill the earth and his spirit poured out on all flesh. And so we'll note, just real simple. This is not really hard. Shayon, in his book, written, published in 2009, says that God restored apostles at the Toronto Blessing, up in Canada, where the Canadians are from. And so there's no way you can sit there and say, oh, well, you know, they believe in the ongoing apostles. No, they don't. Patricia King, Shayon, and others 10 years ago were openly talking about the restoration of, prof- of apostles and prophets. That being the case, Michael Brown, who keeps talking about, oh, the ongoing fivefold ministry, he's pulling a fast one, changing the narrative, blurring the facts in order to basically give cover to people like Shayon and others. And you'll note that Shayon was open about the fact they restored apostles back in 1990-something. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, you know, the more I see evidence like this, I mean, what was documented in the writings of men like Shayon and others, the more Michael Brown's uh, new narrative, historical rewrite, it looks more and more like an intentional attempt on his part to put propaganda out into the body of Christ in order to change history so that uh, people don't know the truth about this movement the New Apostolic Reformation. Anyway, you get the idea. Moving along. Time for a money-grabbing televangelist update. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. 
just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats, let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Elder Nero, wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. money. I wanna get me a suit that's made out of oot and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. And there's some I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. <laughs> All right. So we're uh, heading over to the uh, YouTube channel of Jensen Franklin's ministry. And we're going to be listening to a portion of his message titled... The anointing makes the difference. The anointing makes the difference. And we're going to note how he twists God's word here using what uh, my friend, uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, calls the heresy two-step. That's where you lay a text down and then you sashay to the right or sashay to the left, but you don't meaningfully exegete the text at all. That would kind of mess everything up. So without any further ado, here's Jensen Franklin and the anointing makes the difference. Here we go. Exodus chapter 30, verse 23. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take for yourselves quality spices. Some Bible translations say principal spices. One translation says the best spices. And then he lists five different kinds. And then in verse 24, he gives the quantity of, of how much. He says you are to take a hen of olive oil. That is five quarts of olive oil and put five ingredients into it. And it will become the anointing oil. Verse 29, you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. Verse 31. And you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, listen, you may think, well, that was back then for them and there. Saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me. That's God speaking throughout your generations. Now, boy, there's a lot going on there. Let's pay attention to... Step one of the heresy two-step. So he's working through parts of Exodus 30, and he has not paid attention to the context. Who is being spoken to, and for what is, is this all being made? Now, Exodus chapter 30, God is giving Moses instructions on building the tabernacle, the different uh, implements that were part of the tabernacle, including the lampstand, uh, including the altar of incense, including the altar itself, the uh, the ark of the covenant, and uh, the the table of the presence, uh, the bread of the presence, all of these things. And along with that, then he gives instructions on how to put together what the ingredients, the recipe itself is for the anointing oil that will make everything holy. And so that particular in you know recipe was specifically I like to refer to it as like the first designer anointing fragrance 
it it was trademarked and copyrighted and god uh, promised severe punishments to those who made it for any other purpose than the uh, purposes that it intended or that god intended so exodus 30 verse 22 let's take a look at this again moses is on mount sinai god is relaying this information to him, giving him explicit instructions. And it says, Yahweh said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250 and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil, And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils and the basin and its stand. And you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So this, you're going to know it. If you pay attention to the details, this was the anointing oil that anointed all of the implements in the tabernacle, which would eventually become the uh, the the temple itself and this was also the anointing oil used to anoint the priests Aaron and his sons and anything that was anointed by it was automatically by God's decree and his word made holy and the verse there talking about the you know, throughout your generations is not saying that this will go on and 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 on, you know, to the end of the world, because you'll note, ain't nobody using this anointing oil for the temple utensils or for any of the Levitical priests today. They haven't been around since 70 A.D. So what he has done here, what Jensen Franklin has done here, is pull a fast one. And basically, he's talking about he's, the anointing makes the difference, and this anointing oil makes things holy. And so he's really botched this already and purposely left out important information in order to make it appear as if this anointing oil is still an ongoing thing today. Yeah, no, it's not. But let me back up the video just a little bit. I want you to hear him you know, kind of laying this down. Must be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. Verse 31. And you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, listen, you may think, well, that was back then for there, them and there. Saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me. That's God speaking. 
throughout your generations. Yeah, this was part of the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. Mosaic Covenant is not in effect. And there is no temple. There are no Levitical priests serving in the temple today. So he's pulling a fast one here. I want you to do this from generation to generation. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it. I don't want it substituted. I want it to be the real thing. According to its composition, it's holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, some translations say a stranger, shall be cut off from his people. I remembered a message that impacted my life. Now, a little bit of a note here. So he's laid the tax down, created the false impression that uh, this anointing oil, well, we, we it should... Yeah, it's post. It's an ongoing thing. It's not for just then. It's also for now. And now that he's done this, he's not going to exegete this text at all. He's laid the text down, and now he's going to sashay to the right. He's going to do see do to the left. This is all, all how the heresy two-step works. And what follows now has nothing. Zero. Nothing whatsoever to do with Exodus chapter 30. I don't remember every detail or even specific points of the sermon, but the title that this particular preacher, a famous preacher of days gone by, who uh, has gone on to be with the Lord, his name was Ray H. Hughes, Dr. Ray H. Hughes. He preached a sermon that became very famous to a generation of preachers before my generation, like my dad and, and others. And that sermon was called, The Anointing Makes the Difference. The Anointing Makes the Difference. How many of you know there's... Yeah, now which anointing was he referring to? You'll note that Jensen Franklin runs in charismatic and charismatic circles. So, yeah, we've changed the referent here. Yeah, totally changed the referent. That's not what Exodus 30 is referring to difference between singing and anointed singing. There's a difference between preaching and anointed preaching. There's a difference between having church and having an anointed church service. Uh-huh. So what does Exodus chapter 30 have to do with having an anointed church service as opposed to having, you know, just a church service? Or having singing as opposed to, you know, anointed singing. Exodus 30 has nothing to do with this. So what was the point of you reading out Exodus 30? May I hazard a guess as to the answer to that question? Maybe the reason why Jensen Franklin read out Exodus 30 was in order to hide the fact that what he's teaching isn't biblical and to only make it appear as if it's biblical. Because Exodus 30 has nothing to do with what he's saying. Because the anointing makes the difference. And I want to I steal his title. Because I believe that is what will make the difference in your life. You know, if you're a business person, we think... The... Not, not Jesus. Jesus won't make the difference in your life. But the anointing will. 
So 1 John 2.20, you have an unction, now is related to the anointing oil for the purpose of anointing the Levitical priesthood and anointing the uh, the artifacts, the implements of the uh, the tabernacle itself. Yeah, that's not a valid cross-reference there, Jensen. Is upon someone, there is an unction behind you. There is, we, we, we used to, I used to preach a sermon when I was an evangelist, and I called it the unction to function. Amen. And there's something about the anointing that gives you the unction. It quickens you. It causes you to have the ability to do something. It graces you. The anointing, the word anoint means to smear on or to rub on. That's what we will do. We will, we will take the anointing oil and touch and smear on or rub on. And that anointing will have a fragrance and a smell. It's amazing to me that he said you are to take a hen of oil, which is five quarts of oil or six quarts, six quarts of oil. There's a symbolic message that when they would anoint in the, in the Bible days, they would pour six quarts of this anointing oil. And it wasn't just a little mercy drop from heaven. It wasn't just a little dab would do you. It wasn't just a little smear and maybe put a little dot on their head or a cross with oil. But they poured six quarts of oil. Read Psalms 133. The Bible said the oil flowed down Aaron's hair, down past his beard, onto his garment, down to his feet. He was drenched in the anointing. And I believe that there is a need today in the church for that kind of anointing. We don't need little mercy There's a need in the church for a six-quart oil anointing. What benefit is that going to serve exactly? You know... Uh, you, you, you see, it sounds so holy. It sounds so biblical. But as soon as you just push just a little bit on it, you realize the whole doctrine that he's teaching, that he try, is trying to create the pretense that's coming out of Scripture, doesn't make a lick of sense at all. That's part of how the heresy two-step works. We don't need, we're not fighting smaller things. We're fighting bigger things than we've ever fought before. And there's an anointing that the Bible talks about in Joel that said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. I'm not going to just touch you or, or momentarily bless you. I want there to be a saturation of the anointing. I want you to be drenched in the anointing. You'll note then that, you know, he's just kind of, you know, we're, we've got all kinds of definitions of anointing here. None of them are consistent. And not in, in no case is he actually treating the anointing discussed in Scripture. It, the anointings, by the way, there's multiple ones. 
He's in, he isn't doing anything to provide clarity to help us understand what's going on. And Exodus 30 has nothing to do with any of the New Testament anointings. Like, not at all. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from John Maxwell on how to have a blessed life, and he's going to be totally mangling Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. This might feel like theological waterboarding, but you'll get used to it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. presents Church Day Select. again, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of What the Buzz, where we show you the latest, the greatest, the most fantastic and controversial inventions in the Christian world of tomorrow, today. In studio with me right now is the infamous Dr. Ergen Kanner with his latest product called Ergen Kanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray. Dr. Kanner, please tell us how you invented this marvelous product. It all started when I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My conversion to Christianity was a relatively mundane one. Being a run-of-the-mill Christian is not what we call exciting. I bet. When I would try to tell my pagan friends why they too should be Christians, all they did was laugh at me and tell me how pathetic my Christian testimony was. I knew then that if my story of how I chose Jesus was more compelling, then I would be able to reach more people. It wasn't until years later that I created the spray that you see before you now. Well, what does it do? It does exactly what I said it does. For example, after using this spray, I was able to completely change my Christian testimony. I went from being a boring, middle-aged man to an individual who grew up under the oppression of Islam. I was part of the Islamic Youth Jihad, and I had been personally trained by terrorists of Al-Qaeda. When I moved to America in my 15th year, I was plagued by ridicule 
and bullying in my high school. People would call me Sand Monkey and push me around like a ragdoll. I wished to crush the infidels where they stood. Luckily for me, I found Jesus and accepted him into my heart before I committed acts of terrorism. Instead of a bomb on my back, I now had the cross of Jesus. That's an amazing story! Has your spray worked with other people? Yes, yes it has. Take a listen to some unenhanced testimonies from these non-actors about my product. Before I used Ergen Canner's testimony enhancement spray, I was a boring accountant working for a small firm in the farthest reaches of upstate New York. Me, being a Christian, was about as compelling as watching paint dry. Then I became a pirate from the 17th century who personally helped sack the Spanish main. I pillaged and plundered the heart and soul out of the Caribbean for many a year. Then one day, I miraculously accepted Jesus into my heart and I was saved. I put up me cutlass forever and sailed to America with the hope of telling more people that Jesus died so that they might live in luxury. I was a simple stay-at-home dad who didn't have any real ambitions in life other than taking care of my children. I'd always go to my local megachurch and experience the presence of God. My friends who did fantasy football with me never really found my Christian walk to be that compelling. So now, I'm an ex-assassin who carries out hundreds of missions for the government around the world. There isn't anybody on Earth that I couldn't kill with a pair of chopsticks and a stick of bubblegum. During one of my last missions, I came across the family who had told me the good news, that I had the power to forgive myself of all the debts I had wrought. In that moment, I felt a change come over me as I led Jesus into my heart, and I gave up my life of murder forever. I used to be normal and happy. Then one day my church counselor, Mr. Gary Sunshine, told me to go on an Emmaus walk to find Jesus. I guess I didn't trust in God hard enough because I was lost in the wilderness for over three months. Jesus never showed up and Mr. Snuggles didn't make it. I had almost died from starvation, then a helicopter came, and... What are you doing here? That's not a testimony. You do not even use spray. Get out! Um, you promised me five dollars for the testimony. I'm not paying you for that garbage. Get out! Be sure to pick up your very own bottle of Ergen Tanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray from Los Lobos Ministry Products. Order now! And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. 
And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Reformanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Reformanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Ugh. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that people who read a biblical text and then don't say anything about what it actually says are deceiving you. The reason you'll think that is because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along, I'm trying to think what would be the appropriate music for John Maxwell. Oh, yeah, 
This might work. I didn't know you was going to start out with Looking for a city built above. Looking for a city where we'll never die. Where the same in millions never say goodbye. There we'll meet our Savior. And our love was true. Come, our Holy Spirit. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be listening to a portion of uh, John Maxwell's sermon titled How to Have a Blessed Life. If you want to go ahead and head on over to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this is a bizarre twisting of Scripture that we're going to hear John Maxwell engaging in. Let's get right to it. Here we go. About 20 years ago, I spent an entire year um, just reading, studying, and, and just allowing the, the Sermon on the Mount to, to penetrate my heart. It was very like It took a whole year? <laughs> so you, you set aside an entire year to studying the Sermon on the Mount, 20 years ago. Okay. Changing. And I would like to talk to you a little bit today about just a, a little part, just a very small part of, of that great message of Christ. Yeah. And I would like to talk to you about how to have a blessed life, how, how to how to live a blessed life. We we hear a lot of times people, you know, they'll they'll, they'll say blessings and you know bless you, and and it's a wonderful phrase. I love for somebody to say bless me, and yeah. and um, you know every once in a while when you, you sneeze, somebody says bless you, you know. And this is going to be a little deeper than a sneeze, okay? <laughs> but but how many of you want to live a, a, a blessed life? Let me just uh, let's do a little survey here. Come on, folks, let's get with it here, you know. Me, me, me. Do you think the Sermon on the Mount's about how to live a blessed life? It's not, by the way. Uh, let me explain what the Sermon on the Mount, especially the opening portion, is all about, the Beatitudes. Uh, the, the Beatitudes are a description of Christians. Yeah, people who are truly penitent believers in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And so let's take a look at it using the English Standard Version, which is a perfectly good translation. It's not the only good one out there, but it's a good modern translation and one that is worthy of studying from. But Matthew 5, uh, verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are, note the... uh, that you are already blessed. You are currently, presently blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, I, I like to, you know, if I were to paraphrase it, I would paraphrase it as those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who recognize they have nothing to offer to God. 
in exchange for their salvation. Their, their pockets are empty, and they have nothing. They are literally destitute in spirit. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not the, the spiritual, you know, superstars and superheroes. No, the, the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Mourning, by the way, here is uh, everybody mourns, pagan and Christian alike. This is the mourning that comes over sorrow for sin, having transgressed God's holy law. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Meek here has to do with the humbling of yourself before the Lord, humbling yourself in order to be forgiven and crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner, just like the the, the tax collector did in the uh, parable of the Pharisee and tax, collect- and tax collector in the Gospel of Luke. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. And Christians have received mercy, and we pray daily, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart, can you can only receive that from God, by the way. Ezekiel talks about how God will remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And that God is the one who purifies our hearts. They shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Think of 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that we Christians have been given the ministry of reconciliation and that God himself is making his appeal to the world through us to be reconciled to God in Christ because God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. And then blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in, in, in reality, the, the Beatitudes are not some steps to follow in order to have a blessed life. No, Jesus is announcing those who are already blessed. And if you are a penitent believer in Jesus Christ, destitute, calling out to God to forgive you, you're mourning over your sins and trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, the, this is describing you. You are in a state of blessedness. That's the idea behind the the Beatitudes. But what John Maxwell's going to do here is embarrassing, is the best way I can put it. We continue. Well, what's so beautiful is Jesus teaches us how to live a blessed life, and we're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about climbing with him, being his climbing companions. On 60 Minutes... What? Being Jesus' climbing companions, do I need carabiners and stuff? What are you talking about? They did an interview uh, several years back now of, of where a, a man who had just climbed at Mount Everest with a party of people, um, and it was a very difficult climb. And In fact, they lost a couple members in that climb. And uh, so the 60-minute interviewer was talking to him and, and asking him, why do you go through such uh, danger, such difficulty, uh, why, why do you risk your life to, to get to the top of the mountain? And, and the, the mountain climber just looked at the interview on 60 Minutes and, and he just said, it's obvious to me you've never been on the top of the mountain. And, and when you go to the top of the mountain and you climb, you become a climbing companion with Jesus. It begins to be... <laughs> um, what? <laughs> Just looking at this um, climbing companion with Jesus. 
Sermon on the Mount is not about being a climbing companion of Jesus. Where are you getting that? I know where he's getting it, by the way. The message. We'll see that in a minute. Really awesome. And there's a passage of scripture that are just going to be foundational for us today. It's in in Matthew chapter 5. It's on your screen. Jesus is just coming off the lake. And now he's seeing that his ministry is beginning to draw huge crowds. So what did he do at the, at the lakeside when he saw the, the large crowds? He climbed a hillside. And those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. The, the committed climbed with him. Yeah, let's take a look at that ESV again, which, by the way, follows the Greek pretty well. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Yeah, you'll note that the message is adding all kinds of stuff here. And what's he doing? He's exegeting the message here, which is not a sound biblical text at all. It's It, it just makes up stuff, you know. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught, I love this phrase, his climbing companions. I love this phrase, man. Climbing companions it's not in the greek it's it's not in in any of the modern translations yeah nothing about climbing companions i mean just if you do a comparative you know study here so there's matthew 5 from the esv let's take a look at the uh, the nasb and uh, let me make that a little bit bigger. So he saw the multitudes. He went up on the mountains. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. And they, opening his mouth, he began to teach them. All right. Nothing about climbing companions mentioned there. That phrase that he just loves. And, of course, you know he spent an entire year, 20 years ago, studying the Sermon on the Mount. And, and yet he doesn't seem to recognize this ain't there. Uh, the the NIV, the 1984 edition, doesn't mention anything about climbing companions. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying. Yep, no mention of climbing companions there. So I, I think you see the problem here is, is that uh, John Maxwell is making a big to-do about something that is unique to... The message paraphrase, which no Christian heard or believed or taught until that catastrophe was published. Now, here's—I mean, here's what the message paraphrase says. I don't even own a copy of it. I have to go to BibleGateway.com if I want to see it. It says uh, when Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him, arriving at a quiet place. He sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Oh, this is this is terrible. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one who is most dear to you. I mean, you know, with friends like this within the visible church, who needs the devil and demons and stuff, you know? Uh, You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. 
yeah, you know, John Maxwell spent an entire year studying, this, you know, the Sermon on the Mount here. And so now he, his favorite phrase is Jesus' climbing companions. And in my Bible, back on June the 8th, 1996, I wrote in the side. Was the message paraphrase published in 96? I don't remember when that thing came out, to be honest with you. I have to think about that. Was it out in... I, hmm, I thought it came out later than that, but what do I know? The Bible. I want to be a climbing companion of Jesus. I want to take that climb. I want to, I want to, I want to go up that hill with him. You can't. He already climbed it. You, you, we're not called to climb that hill with anybody. You know, we weren't there. That's a historical narrative that Matthew wrote. Because it's obvious to me, when you really see this scripture in context, that there were a mass of people at the lake, but as he began to climb, the committed went with him. In other words, not every... As you begin to study this in context, from the message. I'm losing my mind here. Sermon. Not, not everybody enjoyed... What, what a few enjoyed, the, those that were willing to, to take the energy, make the effort, take the time to, to climb the, the mountain. And, and so I'm going to share with you in this session five ways to live a blessed life, okay? Number one, and what's so beautiful about these five things I'm going to share with you is that they're, they're very reachable. Every one of you here on all the campuses, every one of you, you can reach these. These are all achievable. Yeah, this is a confusion of law and gospel, by the way. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes is describing Christians, and they are already blessed. Note he's emphasizing, oh, Jesus is climbing companions, and ooh, I want to be a climber with Jesus. And so he thinks the Beatitudes are things you have to climb to in order to have a blessed life. Uh, Jesus didn't say you will be blessed if you do this. He says, you are already blessed, you who mourn, you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you who are spiritually poor. Uh-huh. You can scale this. You can get here. It's not above us. It's not beyond us. It's not too hard for us. In fact, look at your neighbor and, and say to them, even you can have this blessed life. Go ahead and tell them that. He, Yeah, even you can have it. Number one. If you want to live this blessed life, number one, make an effort to spend time with Jesus. We've already seen that illustrated in the very beginning of this story as it unfolded to us, that the, it was the climbing companions that got to, to hear him. Often you've heard me talk about, because I wrote a book called Intentional Living, and when I talk about intentional living because I think it's, it's absolutely the essence of a successful life. I do a visual, and the visual is very simple. I just hold my arm up in the air like I am doing right now, and basically I tell people what I'm telling you. Everything worthwhile is uphill. Yeah, that, that has nothing to do. And I mean absolutely nothing to do with the Sermon on the Mount. 
So note, he, he referenced his book, Intentional Living or whatever. By the way, I was Googling, you know, the, trying to figure out when the message paraphrase was published. And it was published in segments starting in 1993 and finished in 2002. So clearly the time frame that he was talking about, I wrote this in my Bible, I want to be a climbing companion with Jesus. He was reading the uh, Matthew edition of the message paraphrase before the whole thing was finished. Thanks, Eugene Peterson. But anyway, oh man, this this is just awful. This is not a proper handling of the Sermon on the Mount at all. And boy, he tr- likes to make himself look like he's such a smart fella. And you know, look at the go- the context of what's going on here on the Sermon on the Mount. You can't do that from the message. Everything. You have nothing worthwhile in your life that you did not have to climb to get it. Your dreams, they're all uphill. Your hopes, they're all uphill. No, they're not. No, not the eternal ones. And what I mean is this, is that salvation is a gift given by God. I didn't climb anything to get it. Jesus climbed Golgotha, bled and died on the cross for my sins so that I can be forgiven and receive salvation as a gift by grace through faith. And the hope that I have of eternal life with Christ, new heavens, new earth, I didn't climb nothing for that either. Like, not even at all. All of that, that hope that I have is a gift given. I didn't aspire to it. I sat there with empty pockets, nothing to offer God, and Christ gave it to me as a gift. And he only gives that as a gift. Anybody who tries to save themselves by their works, they are damned. Galatians 5 makes this very clear. When Paul writes to the Judaizers, he says, You who would be justified, justified means to be declared righteous. You who would be justified by the law, you have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen from grace. And so I'm actually quite repulsed by the message that John Maxwell is preaching here because every you know anything worth having you have to climb a hill or you have to aspire to have it no my salvation and the hope of eternal life I didn't aspire at all didn't climb anything it was given to me as a gift by Christ the relationships that are the, the most diff- dear dear to your heart they're all, all uphill if you've been successful it's all uphill no, no one ever, no one ever wrote a book called "Sliding to Success." <laughs> we, since when is the Christian life about success? Jesus says to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. The saying. <laughs> you've never heard. A, you've never heard a. You've never heard a, a successful person talk about. Accidental accomplishments. It's all uphill. And see, to get uphill, you've got to be intentional. No, nobody went uphill. Nobody's ever gone uphill by accident. You've never seen a successful person interviewed and, and they said to him, how did you get to the top of the mountain? And you've never seen a successful person kind of look around and go, oh my. Yeah, by the way, the latency is on their video, not mine. 
I have no idea. I just woke up. Here I am. Oh, happy day. Again, since when is Christianity about being successful? No. If you get to the top, you do it on purpose. It takes energy. It takes effort. When I wrote the book, The 15 Laws of Growth, the first law. When I wrote the book, when I wrote the book, notice he keeps plugging his books. Buy more about, buy more of my books and you're going to learn how to be successful. And he, that's why he loves the phrase, you know, climbing companions. Because it's all about, well, this fits perfectly into the, well, the theology and the practice and the methods laid out in John Maxwell's books. I did it purposely. The first law is the law of intentionality. And the law of intentionality just says growth doesn't just happen. If you grow, you do it on purpose. If you, if you really want to have a blessed life, you do, it, you do it on purpose. And it's going to take energy. It's going to take effort. Several years ago, I had the privilege of being in Jordan and visiting Petra, one of the seven most scenic wonders of the world. And uh, it's, if you've been there, you know it's a, it's a, it's a hard day. A lot of walking, a lot, quite a bit of climbing. And it happened to be when my left knee was very bad. And in fact, I was knowing I was going to have to have a replacement on it. But, but, but I wanted to see it, so I walked it. And, and we had a late lunch that day, probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and I, oh, I was tired. And this knee was just bothering me terribly. And our guide said, did you enjoy it? Oh, it was incredible. Yeah, so notice he's regaling us now with his expedition to Petra in Jordan. Yeah, if you don't know what that is, it's at the tail end of uh, the Indiana Indiana Jones and the you know with the last one, you know, with the with the uh, the Crusaders, yeah, and it, you know, and the and the Holy Grail, you know, that one, yeah, it's at the very end sequence. So yeah, and then he said, you know, there's one more thing most people don't see, but and he pointed to a mountain. He said, on top of that mountain is a library, just carved out of stone that is incredible to see. And he said, most people don't, don't make the effort to, to go see it. And I remember looking- None of this has anything to do, like nothing at all to do with the Sermon on the Mount. And my family, and, and I said, I- I'm going to take the mountain. And, and I, I didn't want to take the mountain, but I didn't want to miss it. And, and you know, you, you just don't go to Petra every day. And so it took me a while, and I made that climb, and I got up there, and I saw that site. Then I got off that mountain. It took me two hours to get off the mountain. And then I went to my hotel, and I started, started icing and soaking and praying and asking forgiveness and <laughs> getting the knife to cut it off and, and you know, and, and calling the surgeon immediately and saying, I'm ready, I'm ready. You know, I've, uncle, uncle, you know what I'm saying. You, you, you see, the only, way to, the only way to see that last library is to make the effort. Right, yeah. And this has nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, John Maxwell is a motivational speaker. He should not be preaching anywhere. I mean, maybe he'd be good for, you know, helping some corporate teams, you know, bond and take the corporate mountain or nonsense like that. But the problem is, is that he twists God's word to make it look like God's word teaches these success principles when in fact it doesn't teach any of them. And he is a false teacher as a result of it because he's blaspheming. He's taking God's word and twisting it 
and manipulating it in such a way for his own gain. Hence all the plugs for his books. I think you get the idea. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Adam Hushka uh, uh, about, well, what's the dream? Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck. Because we now, at Pirate Christian Media, have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) 
is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Of fighting for the faith. Sermon review time. Let's do this right. bad and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Narrate Church, Helena, Montana. Adam Hushka presiding. The name of the sermon series is A Word About Faith, and the subtitle for the sermon is What's the Dream? You know, and with a sermon series with the name, a, a word about faith. I mean, this would be a great place to, you know, talk about saving faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, things like that. But Adam Hushka apparently is just a little bit too, well, busy for that kind of stuff. So he's decided to instead just scratch itching ears and pretty much spend his entire time saying a whole lot of nothing. That's the best way I can describe it. So let's back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Adam Hushka and What's the Dream? Here we go. Part of what I love about this time of year is, and this is probably some projection, but I think there's also some truth to it, is that as much as we call the new year January, which I suppose it is, it seems to me that September is, for many of us, the start of the next year. Like, really, that Tuesday after Labor Day, there's this sense of, like, oh, yeah, i got to get back to work. i got to start working hard again. i got to get back to the gym. i got to start replenishing the savings account that I've spent the summer depleting, those kinds of things. And I think it's obviously especially true if you're in school or if your kids are in school or if you work in school. But it seems to me that it's also true just the way we live our lives in this community, that that so much of our lives are built around the recreation that happens uh, May through August or sometimes the second week of July through the first week of August, however the weather works that year. And so there's this, this kind of deep breath and sense of like, okay, so we get to get back to routine. And so this year, ra- rather than start a brand new series right out of the gates, what, what I want to do is spend these first uh, couple weeks just kind of looking at what does it mean to be stepping into a new year uh, and, and asking some questions. 
what does it mean to be stepping into a new year? What? You'll note that uh, this guy is like a seeker-driven megachurch pastor. And my immediate question is, what's the draw? Because the one thing he ain't doing is meaningfully teaching God's Word at all. I, I don't know what this has anything to do with Christian discipleship. Did Peter, James, John, Paul, any of these guys believe these things or teach these things? Questions uh, about faith and how it is we move forward in all of that. You know, that there's this question that we've... Uh, we've been asking for years, and I think it is suitable to ans- ask again this morning, and that's this question of what if it's the daily that leads to the dream? And that's What if it's the daily that leads to the dream? What are you smoking? What, are, what is this? Something that we valued communally. It's something we've tried to um, value individually, where we just recognize that, that having a vision, having an ambition, wanting to accomplish something, wanting to be something, that's the easy part. It's it's super easy to just have this big idea, whether that big idea is your job or your health or your career or your faith or whatever. But it's another thing to translate that. It's it's another thing to, to make all of that happen in the everyday. Uh, and so we've just been asking this question: What what if it's the daily that leads to the dream? Uh, yeah. What if? I mean, what if it's the daily that leads? To, I mean, wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, I think John Maxwell summarizes that best. Uh, Funny that you'd mention him. We were, we were just talking about, you know, we were just listening to him, you know, uh, he talks about the rule of five and John Maxwell points out that if you had John Maxwell talks about the rule of five, not Jesus, not Peter, not James, John, um, None of the authors of scripture. No, it's it's John Maxwell who talks about that. Had this giant hundred year old tree in your backyard, and uh, you rather than call an arborist, decided you were going to take it down yourself, and rather than use a chainsaw, you were going to use a medieval axe. Uh, that one approach would be to walk into your backyard and to just start swinging away, uh, and maybe ignorantly believing that by the end of the day, the tree will fall and your neighbor's house will hopefully still be intact. But what's likely to happen is 40 minutes in, your hands are going to be bloody and blistered, and you're going to be more tired than you know was possible, and you won't be able to lift your arms above your head, and tomorrow you'll be walking like this, and you'll quit and you'll walk in and you'll sit on the couch and you'll figure out how you're going to find the money to hire a professional. But what the rule of five says is that the other option is to say, okay, it's going to take me 18 months to knock that tree over, but here's the plan. Every morning... Uh, I'm going to get up and I'm going to swing the axe five times at the tree, ideally. And every afternoon I'm going to do the same thing. And initially it's going to look like no progress is being made, but over time I'm going to build skill and I'm going to build muscle and slowly uh, the cumulative effect will begin to take place. And hopefully after a year or maybe two, I'll knock that sucker over. And that's what we mean by the daily leads of the dream is how, how do we translate the big stuff to the small stuff? And as much as I hope that that is helpful for you to process in, in your everyday whatever life, this morning what I want to do is ask it around faith. Like, because faith is one of those things that if we're not careful, we just drift. You know, we have goals for our business and our savings accounts. We have goals for, for our own character sometimes. We, we have goals for the next vacation we're going to take or the next upgrade we're going to make in our favorite recreation. But as we've talked about in the past, drifting is something that happens in those areas that matter most. You, 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 don't, you don't drift towards a better marriage. You don't drift towards a better relationship with your kids. You don't drift towards those big, hairy, audacious goals. You don't drift towards a healthier relationship with God. Those are the types of things that, 
that if you're not careful, you, you drift away from them. But instead, if you're going to accomplish them, what we've talked about is you, you've got to turn upstream and make some specific decisions. And so this morning, I just want to ask, like, how, how do we do that? And what would that look like? For- yeah, I mean, how, how, how do we do that? Yeah, I'm curious how you think we do that. For you to be that intentional over these next few days and to project out over the next year and ask yourself, what are your, what are your faith goals? You know, a friend asked me, if you're wondering what this is all about, a friend asked me uh, just before Labor Day, before we uh, took off for the weekend ourselves, uh, a friend said, Adam, what, what does type 2 starting over look like for you? What does type 2 starting over look like? Yeah. I, I don't even know what type 1 looks like. Who knew there was a type 2, you know? And the reference, of course, is the series that we did in August. And if you weren't with us, there's always podcasts. And soon, thanks to Kate and Marla, uh, videos and live feed and all that stuff. But there's not on that one. But if you want to look back, uh, I recommend you do that. But by way of quick review, what we talked about in August is that there's a couple types of starting over that happen in life. Uh, one type is the type that's thrust upon us because of something like cancer, because of something like a, ch- a change in the marketplace and our business fails. It's the type that happens when we get a divorce or someone fires us or school, the school year doesn't go well. And we just, everything goes up in a ball of flames and we have to start over. But what we've spent August exploring is that there's another type of starting over. And that's just what we've been calling type two starting over. Uh, it's one of my only original ideas ever in my whole life. Oh, he he's the inventor of the type two starting over. Yeah, no no wonder, yeah. You see, Jude talks about, you know, the faith once delivered to the saints. Yeah, Adam Hushka, you know, coming in 2,000 years later and talking about type two starting over. Yeah, that ain't something that any Christian's been believing until, you know, he came along. And what type 2 starting over recognizes is this very disciplined practice of saying sometimes the type of starting over that's required is because of whatever success you've had. Sometimes everyone at work is patting you on the back and telling you you're the man and everything's going great. Sometimes there's certain things that are just going awesome and that creates a momentum, but then you recognize that that momentum is actually taking you off course. It's what a good organization does when they recognize, yeah, we're busier than ever, but our customer service stinks. It's what a great organization does when they go, yeah, more and more people are buying our product, but the expense is our product isn't as good as it used to be. It's what people do when they go, yeah, the guys at work sure like me, but my wife can't stand me anymore. And so we've just been asking this question, what what does type 2 starting over look like? And I know that this intro is a giant amalgam. But you know, sometimes you think about so much, think about things so much that it gets too complicated and then you walk away from them for a couple weeks and the the simplest answer is the two-sentence answer. That's what happened to me as I was sitting with my friend and I said, you know, I think for me, it's permission to not have arrived. I think type two starting over for me is... We- yeah, uh, permission that you haven't arrived. Yeah, yeah, Didn't know you need permission for that, but okay, yeah. What does this have to do with Christianity again? We never set out, I never set out to be the authority on God or theology or church. The goal was... You didn't even set out to be a faithful exegete who rightly handles God's Word, clearly. Yeah. Never, at 19 years old when I started following Jesus, to have God figured out and be able to perfectly explain Him and all of His complexity. I think for me it's permission to just have simple faith. And organizationally, that's kind of what we're doing. Well, I walked out of that meeting and I went into a, a, a webinar kind of conference thing with one of my profs at George Fox or what is now called Portland Seminary, which I do not think is cool. Um, it's too hipster. 
But she talked about visiting monasteries. I'm in a spiritual director's class, and, and what I didn't know is that it's, it's fairly common at monasteries uh, that the mo- What's a spiritual director? Monks, uh, the priests, the nuns, they, they drink out of double-handed glassware. And they do so in order to remind one another that they're still beginners. That despite all of their experience and the accolades and, you know, the years of following Jesus, there's this simple little gesture where they're constantly using double-handed glassware to remind themselves that they're all kids. And none of them have God figured out. So the monks drink out of glass sippy cups to remind them they're still beginners. I, I'm in pain. We're all beginners, and somehow that's the most important thing. And so what I want to do this morning is, is ask that. What, what is the dream? Like, what, what's the goal? Uh, my boys and I have been getting to know this guy named Manny in town. Uh, Manny is from Venezuela, and he's one of the baseball authorities in town, or you know, one of those guys who knows it really, really well. He played for the Helena Brewers. And then grew roots here. Uh, and, and so Manny was telling us, uh, it's probably been a month ago now, uh, that when he was 12 years old, he decided he wanted to play Major League Baseball or professional baseball in the United States, which I suppose isn't lost on us how uh, a 12-year-old boy in Venezuela would, would look up at that mountain and go, let's go do this. Well, the problem was, as a 12-year-old boy, he wasn't even a starter on his league team. But he was committed. He, he decided this is what he wanted. And so at 12 years old, he started going to practice every morning before school, And then after school, he went back to practice. And for over four years, every morning and every afternoon, he practiced baseball a couple times a day. Well, the international signing rules for Major League Baseball players is 16 years, six months. Unless you're the Yankees, then you find ways to do it earlier. (laughs) Just kidding. That's a cheap shot. Yankees, Dodgers, I'm sure they all do it. 16 years... Sixteen years, six months, you as a major league team can sign these international players. They don't come out of the draft, obviously, and there's all these complexities now with signing money. So at 16 years, six months, he had his first tryout, and the answer was no. And then he had his second tryout, and the answer was no. And his third tryout, the answer was no. Fourth, fifth, sixth tryout, no, no, no. Seven, eighth, ninth tryout, still all no's. Tenth tryout, no. Now what are there, 30 teams in Major League Baseball? He's a third of the way through. Are you too busy during your sermon to, you know, open up the Bible? Still hasn't been signed. 11th team, no. 12th team, no. 13th team, no. 14th team, no. 15th team, the Milwaukee Brewers finally signed him. And in that moment, I'm like, man, I hope my boys are paying attention because we don't play baseball because of baseball. We play baseball because the daily leads to the dream. To me, it's the ultimate illustration. You can have a goal. You play baseball because the daily leads to the dream. What if you just, you know, find the game fun, you know? Goal. Everybody has the goal. The question is, how do you translate it down into the daily? And obviously, Manny is a guy who got that. He understood that. I don't know whether it was intuitive or someone helped him with that, but he understood it's going to take four and a half years to knock the tree over. You know, I commonly am sitting across from people who are disappointed with where their faith is at. And the struggle is it's just like a marriage or a friendship or any other relationship. You don't just solve that problem overnight. But here's the question. What's the dream for your faith? And how do you get there? Like, what's the point of this? What is your goal? Isn't the goal of faith eternal life? 
the, the, I mean, what, what kind of goals am I supposed to have in the interim? You know, I'm, I'm a little curious what you think they should be. For your spirituality. And chances are high, if you're anything like me, that, that you, some of you have been following Jesus long enough that you haven't thought about that question. For you, the goal is to stay a follower of Jesus. Which, if your goal was anything else... Would, Not a bad goal. ...would be a terrible approach. I just want to stay on top. I just want to... No, you, you've got to have some active goals. What, what's the goal? Why, why, are, why are you here? Is it... Is it to arrive in heaven when you die? And I'm not even... Yeah, I'm, um, I'm here to do the good works that Christ has prepared in advance for me to do. Ephesians 2.10, you know. Suggesting that would be a bad goal, but is that the goal? And if so, how do you work on that? Is it to avoid hell? Is it because you're an Enneagram 6 and you're a catastrophizer and like me, you're a control... A, a, a what? An Enneagram 6? Yeah, totally lost here now freak and the best thing to do with god is master him so it's one more variable eliminated from your life do you do theology and take god seriously because you're the type of person who likes to know more than the person next to you and god is a pretty big topic in our culture what's the goal is it to eliminate pain and suffering i know for me at 19 i I thought choosing to follow jesus was Choosing a life where bad things wouldn't happen. Is that, is that the goal for you? Is it to make God smile? Is it the opposite, that what's impressed upon you is an unpleasable parent and to keep God from frowning at you? What's, what's the goal? Jesus, Have you ever made an actual assertion? You know, the Bible says this, God has revealed and said, thus saith the Lord. What is all this what if, what if, what if, what if? I do that. This offers what I think is a pretty stern warning for all of us who, who sit in church on Sunday mornings. Uh, he talks about one particularly toxic goal in his great Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Verse 2, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. There's a theme to his warning. Verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Verse 16, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Jesus has a strong opinion on this one, and he says, Hey, one of the goals, if you're not careful, becomes being seen by others as a spiritual giant. Don't do that. Is really what he's saying in the entire chapter. What's the goal? And as I found myself asking this question over and over and over again uh, these last several months, because I had some things happen to me last year that have never happened to me in my 20 years where, where I would walk off the stage, not often, but a few times, and go, God, I'm just... Notice he said walk off the stage. <laughs> yeah, he didn't mention a pulpit. Yeah, yeah, he's on stage. This is apparently a part of a show. Just kind of sick of talking about you. And it causes you to ask this question, what is the point of this. Not that I'm sick of you, but just sick of all the ideas and layer upon layer upon layer. And I remember a friend saying to me decades ago, Adam, I could never go to church again and still not have enough life to apply everything I'm told to do every Sunday. What's the win? Yeah, because that's all you're getting is law, law, more law, and not law and gospel. In. And I couldn't more genuinely say my goal this morning isn't to give it to you, but to beg you to create space in your life. And we're going to return to this next week before we start a series called Parented, where we're going to talk about parenting is difficult. But if we're being honest, being parented is even more difficult. And we want to kind of have a 
honest conversation about all that. But first, I want to spend a couple of weeks going, what, what's the point of this? And for me, that question has brought me back to a moment in 2006 when I was in Dr. Delamarter, who you've met him. He spoke here before, if you've been around here for a while. Spoke here a couple times. A moment in his Old Testament class uh, where he took us back uh, to the very first book of the Bible in one of the most simple verses in the Bible and took a bunch of seminary, complicated God people and boiled it down to this one little tiny thing. But to do that, I think there's a context, and the context is important, and I'd like to uh, il- illustrate it this way. And I, I didn't come up with this. I think a guy named Bruxy Carvey came up with this. We've done this before. But one way to talk about this is this two-chair thing. Uh, that in the beginning, God created. And I think it's essential we don't get caught up how six days or evolutionary creation. That's not crucial to the integrity of the story. In the beginning... The- yeah, it is. It, it, it really is. If... God didn't create the world in six days, the way Scripture says. God's a liar. If we evolve from grandma and grandpa amoeba, then the Bible isn't true. The Bible is lying to you and deceiving you. This completely fulfilled, utterly content God who didn't need me or you or anything else created. Why? I don't know. Why'd you have kids? This God wanted to share his life, and he creates people. And as the story goes, uh, he, he wanted partnership. He, he wanted collaboration. We were made to work, according to the text, and to work. God, God wanted collaboration. Wh- which text says that? I, I'd like to see that, please. With and for and through him, and yet people, they turn their back on God. And they they made life about them. They wanted to be God. They didn't trust God. And this point, I think, all of Christian theology, in my opinion, hinges on this point. What did God do at this point? Because you can tell a story that says at that point God turned his back and until Jesus showed up and talked people and got into liking people again, that was the posture. But in my opinion, that's not the way the text tells the story. Where the text tells the story is God came to Adam and Eve came to them in the garden and said, wait, 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 why are you hiding? What has gone on here? Why don't you read out the text in context and exegete it correctly? And people did the same thing. They turned their back on God. And once bitten, what would God do? Well, God came to them again. And this time he, he came and he said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to destroy you. Something we're going to talk about in this parenting series is just the realization that we have to help our kids know that there's a, such a thing as evil, evil that hates them. Tried to warn them. And people were like, we don't trust you. And they turned their back on God. And God again, after this momentary, like, maybe this was a bad idea. Another diaper. God returned. Through guys like Noah and Enoch and other people, he kept coming back to people, and people kept turning their back on God. And then there's this guy. Your um, paraphrase summary of the early part of Genesis is so far off, it's like not even the same story. Named Abram. And God came to Abram. And he said to Abram, hey, Abram, here's the deal. I... I've created this arrangement where I do almost nothing without doing it through people. Really? When did God say that to Abram? I'm curious. Which chapter? I'd like to see those verses, please. And I love this creation, and I love people. 
And I hate the mess that's been created. So here's the deal, Abram. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless everybody else. It's a reminder what it means. It's the seed of Abraham, the promised one, who would be the one who blesses everybody. That's a reference to Jesus. To be a God-fearing, God-following, Jesus-following person. The basic understanding is God's means of blessing your neighbor, your teacher, your spouse, your kids, isn't necessarily to directly do it himself, but to bless you and you in turn do it for them. No, that, that's not what the story of Abraham teaches at all. When you see that person next to you put a check in the bucket, that's the fundamental belief. God gives me some of his and I use it to be an extension of his goodness to others. When you see someone ushering at the front door or running sound or any number of other things, that's why we do this. And Abram said, okay. And part of the arrangement was Abram had to go. Go to this foreign land. And it just rather simply says he went. And then they were doing their thing, and Abram was in this land that's been conflict-free ever since. And all of a sudden it occurred to Abram that some of God's promises weren't coming true. Namely, he didn't have any kids. And he recognized, uh, we're not getting any younger, and I think probably an heir of mine is going to be, uh, or a slave of mine is going to be my heir. And to Abram's credit, and I think this is what we see in the Psalms, to Abram's credit, he didn't play religion. Somehow he communicated his angst to God. God, what the heck? What's going on here? And God came to him. And it says in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. To which Abram said, God, I don't think you understand. We have a plumbing problem. That's not what he said at all. Verse 6, and here, here, here's this little simple place where probably the most educated theologian I've ever got to have audience with just wrecked the meaning of faith for me. Here it is, verse 6. It just simply says, Abram believed the Lord, and credit to him is righteous. Now, the second part of that verse is full of all kinds of mystery. I'm going to skip it. The first part, Abram believed the Lord. And here, here's the question. If all you had were the first 15 chapters of Genesis, if all you had was the book of Genesis to describe to yourself or your kids or your neighbor, what does it mean to believe God? How do you answer the question? You are believing him for fixing the problem that Adam and Eve broke. You'll note that the Bible begins with the creation. And God, everything that he created was good. And then sin enters in because Adam and Eve... Rather than listen to the voice of God, listen to the voice of the serpent and his deception, and the result is that our human race fell. And then Adam and Eve's children, you know, you think of Cain and Abel. Cain rises up and murders his brother. The world becomes awful. I mean, as a result of our sin, God, lamenting that he had made humanity, destroys the earth. And then there's a kind of a reset through Noah and Noah's family. And Adam and Eve, you know, they messed everything up. And then you get to Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. With just those chapters, the first 15 chapters of Scripture, 
we're trusting God that the promise that he made to Adam and Eve when he cursed the serpent, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that man would be finally freed and released because one would come to conquer and save, that's all in the first 15 chapters. You know, those are the highlights. Adam Hushka seems to have missed all of that stuff. Are we left to assume that what Abram understood was that he was this horrible sinner and that someday Jesus would, God, God would send his son, and because he believed that someday God would send his son, he could have a relationship with God? Is that the nature of Abram's faith? God credited his faith as righteousness, and the promise, Paul makes it very clear, the promise that the world would be blessed through his seed, his offspring, is the gospel, you know, kind of a proto-gospel. Uh-huh. Remember, these are real oral stories. And there was a time when oral stories were thought to have more integrity than written stories. These are real oral stories that capture the real faith of real people like you and I who dealt with real disease and real challenges. And the high point in one of their oral traditions was this moment where Abram believed the Lord. What does that mean? Does that mean that he had all the right moral answers, that he knew which person to vote for and what the right moral answers were to all of life's complexities? Does that mean he... Yeah, you're, you're engaging in deconstruction rather than exegesis. Why don't you answer your own questions? All you seem to be able to do is offer deconstructing questions rather than make biblical assertions. He had this complex understanding of the Trinity. Does it mean that he had a great understanding of world religions and the implications of that on everybody else? What does it mean that he believed God? And the word that was introduced to me over 10 years ago was one simple word. It's fidelity. Like If we're getting literal, the description here is one of trust. And trust, in many cases, was in spite of what Abram knew or didn't know about God. He trusted God. We see evidence of that. He left his, his own homeland and went to another one. He trusted God. And here he was at this moment in his life where everything that he thought God was going to do wasn't happening. And God reassured him. And he trusted God. What does that mean? Does it mean that he assumes that nothing bad will ever happen again? Does it, does it mean that he, he assumes that life will be easy or does it mean that more than any other thing, any other being on the planet, he was going to be vulnerable to somebody and he was choosing this Yahweh, this God? What, what did that last one even mean? Ah, oh, man, I just... Uh. But what if the danger of this... What if, what if, what if? Why don't you exegete the text? <laughs> is we make faith about more than a series of disciplines designed to teach us to rely upon the character of God. Scott McKnight points out, you read the Gospels and you can't help but like Jesus. They're not about a system. They're about a God who, who compels us to trust Him. So let me ask you, what, what are your goals and what are the things that you do every day that aren't designed to make you better? They're not there to make you a better person. They're there to help you trust 
God, the scripture reading, the attending church, the throwing money in a bucket, the serving, the, the getting baptized, they're all valuable only to the degree that they want, that they they remind ourselves to trust God. Why are those daily returns to God so important? Because God needs us to know more about him in order for us to have faith in him? Mm, that's where it gets tricky. The knowledge is about confidence. You, you see this play itself out. You, you... All right. If the knowledge is about confidence, why aren't you saying things that are giving us confidence in God and his promises of forgiveness, mercy, eternal life in Christ? interact with people and the more you get to know them, the less you trust them. And then you interact with people that the more you get, the more you interact with them, the more you trust them. The goal of all of it is that, isn't it? You know, I've been living in Psalm 23 these last couple months. How, how how do you live in Psalm 23? I think we're going to do a series in it in from it in January. Uh, uh, but it's quite a remarkable text. Don't go to. We're going to go to four in just a second. It, it starts, uh, "The Lord is my shepherd; I lack nothing." Which is, you could spend a month on that because it's such an incongruent, audacious claim. Because then you walk out the door and you're diagnosed with cancer. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sheep don't lie down unless they're full. I'm told. He leads me beside quiet waters. Sheep prefer a pond over a, a stream. He refreshes my soul. And then it's verse 4 that I think, again, the, the simplicity of David's faith, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's what I'm loving about Psalm 23 and the advanced nature of David's faith. It's childlike in the sense that he's going, this God can do anything. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And yet, it's not simplistic in the sense that he's not assuming that that means there won't be dark times, even though I walk through the valley. He's not assuming that trusting God means bad things don't happen. In fact, what he's assuming is, assuming is kind of the opposite. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, man, if you do this trust in me thing right, you'll arrive at this place where your house is built on the rock and the storms will come, storms will come, is the assumption. But the house will stand. What's the house? This. This is the house. So let me ask you, what? looking back at the last year, what were the places, what were the times, what were the circumstances that caused your faith to, to waver? <clears throat> and therefore, what's the weightlifting regimen that you can do every day between now and this time next year and put yourself back in some situations where you can see whether or not you've grown in your capacity to do this? Not to avoid suffering, not to be simplistic and naive in the face of it, not to be trite and religious, but to have that Kelsey-like experience where in the midst of suffering, you're like, but this is okay. Because God is here. So let me ask you, what, what are your goals for faith this year? 
just he traffics in deconstructive ambiguities and recognizes that scripture somehow prompts us to confidence yet nothing he says ever leads to that and next week especially for those of you that aren't even sure what if you have faith and what you're supposed to do with that the question i want to ask next week is do you have to start with the question do you even want faith what but what what are the what are the tangible daily things Maybe for you, this just reinvigorates why you get out of bed in the morning. Maybe for you, this is a reminder of why that's valuable to get out of bed in the morning and spend some time in Scripture. Maybe you need to introduce some new disciplines. Maybe there's some relationships there. You know, the key word of the Old Testament is remember, 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 remember. The implication being what? God was there yesterday. Did you see him? It's like that statement, we don't learn from experience. That, that's, that's the biggest myth in the world. We learn, upon, we learn from reflected upon experience. Why are the people in the Old Testament constantly building these towers and doing these weird things? See, here's permission for your next tattoo. Because they needed reminders that God was faithful. You know, so much of the design of what we worked on this summer is to go, let's just get it back to this. We weren't trying to be the only church in town. We're not trying to be the best church in town. We're not trying to have God figured out. We're just trying to be a community that is learning together what it looks like to trust God. And then to put a towel over our arm and just serve people. And the whole thing is predicated upon us winning together as well as individually. So... Would you take some moments today, maybe even during this next song, maybe tomorrow morning, what, what, you have goals for your business, you have goals for your savings account, you have goals for your kids, you have goals for the next thing you're going to fix on your house. What are your goals for your faith? Identify the circumstances that would test whether or not you grow this next year. I'd like to pray, God. Done. This guy, does he even know what the Christian faith is? Because it sounds to me like not only does he know what it is, that he doesn't believe it. That he's looking for a way to cast a new concept regarding Christianity, one that doesn't involve sin, repentance, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Yeah, it's like he knows about those things and is trying to figure out a way to recreate Christianity without any of it. At least that's my take. Yeah. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Ira Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.